Before we begin this week's episode, I just wanted to remind you that the Words to That Effect and She Done It live show is coming up very soon on the 15th of November as part of the Dublin Podcast Festival. So if you're in or near Dublin, please come along. Also, I should say that this week's episode contains some fairly detailed descriptions of public executions and the like, so you have been warned. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. There's no pop culture monster more written about, more critiqued and analysed, more portrayed and adapted and reimagined than the vampire. So I don't want to talk about most vampires today. There will be no discussions of Dracula or Nosferatu, no True Blood or Twilight or Buffy, no Anne Rice or Stephen King, no Bela Lugosi or Christopher Lee. Instead, I want to talk about just a single vampire, one you may well never have heard of. A vampire that, in Victorian times, was far more popular than even Charles Dickens at the height of his fame. A vampire that established many of the tropes of later vampire mythology and fiction. His name is Sir Francis Varney, Varney the Vampire. Traditionally, vampires may have no reflection, but they always reflect the culture and society they come out of. And Varney is very much a product of mid-Victorian Britain. So to understand Varney, we need to understand when and where he first made his appearance. And to understand that, we need to go back to Britain in the 1840s. A time when violence was a routine part of life. When public executions were still a common occurrence. And they were very, very popular. Yes, very popular, hugely popular. Kind of carnival days, really, when you think this is the sort of street entertainment, really. That's Dr. Jarlath Killeen, Associate Professor of Victorian Literature in Trinity College, Dublin. So the, you would have um, the night before the execution would take place, um, people would begin to gather as close to the gallows as they could. Um, respectable families might rent uh, balconies of houses overlooking the gallows in order to get a good bird's eye view and be comfortable. But, you know, the those, the, uh, what Marx would call the lumpen proletariat, would gather uh, all through the streets waiting for this carnival event. It was really a, a fun day out for, for everyone. And the the condemned would be marched through the, the streets of London to, uh, from the jail to the gallows. And in, in this long march, they would be, you know, jeered and shouted at and pelted with all kinds of interesting material from um, dead cats to rotting fruit, rotting vegetables, uh, offal, dung. So by the time they got to the gallows itself, they would absolutely be covered in, I suppose, the detritus of urban life and they would stink. And this would be, then they would be displayed for the, uh, the gathered public who would often get really rowdy and try to sort of, uh, you know, run at the gallows and they had to be kept back by the, by the authorities. And then the condemned would be hanged and the hanging would take a while. Death by hanging at this time was a case of long drawn out strangulation where it might take 10 or 15 minutes before the person was fully dead. 20 years later, the Irish scientist Samuel Houghton would develop what was called the standard drop method, where a measured drop meant that rather than being strangled, the victim's neck was broken. So, you know, still pretty horrendous, but certainly a humane improvement on what came before. 
the hanged uh, person would would jerk and spittle would come out their mouths and often they would excrete uh, with with uh, during the hanging and the crowd would jeer and shout and roar and really enjoy this uh, this spectacle. Um, so it was really a kind of a family day out. And people would be selling food, of course, on the street, or you know, hot pies. Public executions were abolished in 1868 in Britain and Ireland, but capital punishment, mostly for murderers, still continued right up until the 1960s. But even if capital punishment has long disappeared in most parts of the world, and public executions haven't been seen in a century and a half, the appetite for the public spectacle of capital punishment has never really gone away. I, I, what I often try to compare it to is the, the sort of the mass consumption of real instances of violence which are now sort of uploaded to the internet. Now, you don't get the communal experience there, but the eagerness with which a, a huge public would be interested in seeing such incidences of real violence. Um, so something like that. I'd often compare it to. So you don't get the communal aspect, which you get in the 18th and early 19th century, but you do get this continued interest in seeing acts of violence. That that clearly has not gone away. And it's not cartoonish violence, it's not uh, theatricalised violence in in, in some senses. It's, you know, this is real, this is happening, you're watching another human being um, being very severely punished uh, in front of you. For most people, however, the consumption of violence tends to come in the form of popular culture, TV, film, computer games, and so on. And every generation inevitably worries about the effect increasingly graphic depictions of violence have on society. Victorian Britain was no different, and an alternative, or complement, to real-life violence could be found in the mass literature of the day, the so-called penny press. This is the stuff that really worried, um, I suppose, the gatekeepers of culture. Who is reading this? And one of the things they say is the same people who attend public executions, and they have a lot of respectable middle-class, mid-Victorian commentators, like Dickens, including Dickens, really disapprove of public executions and find them disgusting because of the, the carnival atmosphere around them. The scum of mankind, I think one commentator described the, the average crowd at a, at a public execution. This is the very same demographic who are reading the, the penny press and who are also being condemned as, you know, disgusting, filthy, uh, polluted. And this language of diseased, a diseased population, um, you know, you're, defi- you're talking about a pathology really here. And the danger is, what will happen if this spreads, you know? So just in the same way that a crowd could infect the respectable, a mass crowd could in, in, attending a public execution could infect the respectable members of the public um, and, and make them as crazed for blood as anyone else. Will the, pe- the sort of mass violence of the penny press and the kinds of readers of the penny press start to infiltrate sort of much more respectable areas of London? So depictions of fictional violence were as real a threat as the huge crowds baying for blood at public executions. But what are we talking about here exactly? What is the penny press? So you may have heard the term penny dreadful, possibly because of the recent TV series of the same name. Penny Dreadfuls was the name given to mass pulp fiction in Britain in the 1860s and 70s. And the penny dreadful emerged out of its predecessor, the penny blood. Pennies, because that's how much an addition would cost you. 
Um, so it was the cheapest form of literature. Bloods, because they were literally saturated in blood. It was all about, um, in you know, gore, attacks, torture, beheadings. Uh, it was basically soaked in blood. And it usually had, came with one or two illustrations in which uh, a scene of torture would be represented or somebody having been stabbed or somebody's eyes being gouged out. So it was, it, it, it sort of makes sense calling them the Penny Bloods. And Penny Bloods sold in huge quantities with bestsellers like The String of Pearls, the story which first introduced Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, the barber who kills his customers and chops them up to be served as the meat in the pies of Mrs. Lovett's pie shop. The Penny Bloods were sold weekly and bought in the hundreds of thousands by an entirely new reading public. This was the time of mass migration from the countryside to the major cities, particularly London, and it was combined with increased literacy. So for the first time ever, well over half the population, male and female, was literate. And these people require entertainment. They're looking for entertainment. They've learned to read and now they need something to feed this. And they can't buy novels. So the novel, the average novel is going to uh, take them a year's wage to join a circulating library is still quite expensive. Even to rent a book from a library is going to cost them maybe a week's wage. And it would be improbable to read a novel over two or three nights, the, the length of the average sorry, early 19th century novel. Imagine today if a single book cost you about the same as a new car, or renting a book from a library was the same as a month's rent. And then something comes along that costs the price of a cup of coffee. And it's entertaining and thrilling. It's accompanied by an enticing illustration on the front. And it's an easy read. It's very accessible. People can buy it. And you'd buy it for a household. So it would then pass around for the various uh, literate members of the household. Now, we're talking about literacy now. We're talking about a very low level of literacy. If you're judging by simply the ability to sign on a marriage register, which is what a lot of uh, literacy historians use, you're, you're not talking about a hugely sophisticated uh, reading public. They're not going to be reading these, uh, you know, four, three, four volume novels anyway. And the authors would churn this stuff out. They were paid by the word, writing on a ridiculously short deadline, sometimes putting out 50, 60, 70,000 words a week. Imagine writing 70,000 words a week. So that's basically like a decent length novel, week in, week out. And so, understandably, crafting sentences and agonising over word choice were not exactly a top priority. And the turnaround was about as close to instantaneous as he could get in the 19th century. The writer would appear sometime in the evening of the, the day before the instalment would appear. The person would sit down, write up the number of words they were supposed to. They would then get corrections with the, within the hour and then it would go to print. So you're not, you know, yeah. <laughs> immediate form of publication, really. Yeah. Often these, um, these writers would be working for three, four, five, six different serials simultaneously. Um, and often, again, a, a, a writer might not really have complete authorship of a, of a serial. You know, if the publisher needed to, um, you hire someone else to write this week's instalment. Um, so we're talking about really hack writers here, paid by the word. We'll get back to the Penny Bloods in just a moment. But before we do that, I had a very quick few announcements. 
Firstly, as always, drop by the WTTE Patreon page, patreon.com slash WTTE, where you can become a member, get lots of great benefits and help support the show. We got two new supporters this week, Francis and Lara. Thank you both so much. I hope you enjoy the bonus episode. Secondly, as I mentioned at the beginning, come to the live show. All the details are at WTTEpodcast.com and there will be lots of murder and crime and detectives. And speaking of those topics, something else you should check out is the wonderful Murder One Festival. It's in Smock Alley in Dublin from the 1st to the 3rd of November, and there's a great blend of crime, fact, and fiction. There's more happening than I could possibly mention here, but there'll be internationally renowned writers like Martina Cole, Joseph O'Connor, John Banville, Liz Nugent, Dr. John Curran and Andrew Wilson will be talking about Agatha Christie. There'll be true crime events about Jack the Ripper. The UK state pathologist will be there. It's going to be great. And details and tickets for the events, some of which are free, are at murderone.ie. So with that, let's get back to the violence and the murder. What most people are reading is this stuff. Extraordinarily violent material. Most people are not reading uh, three-volume novels. Most people are not reading even Charles Dickens, one of the most popular novelists of the, of the period. Uh, one commentator said that you know, if, if Dickens was reaching tens of thousands, Barney's Vampire was reaching hundreds of thousands. So the Penny Bloods and the Penny Dreadfuls after them were completely dismissed by critics. But they were dismissed because they couldn't really compare to the average Victorian novel. Although that sort of misses the point. I mean, how can you compare a long serialised piece of fiction put out weekly, sometimes by multiple authors aimed at a mass readership, with a novel written over a number of months or years, then edited, revised and published? It's like criticising a soap opera because it doesn't hold up in comparison to a great film. And in many ways, these really were like soap operas. They had characters that could completely change over the weeks and months if it suited the plot. In some cases, their names might accidentally change or they'd be killed off only to reappear several months later when the author or a stand-in may have forgotten that they were supposed to be dead. Although, if you have a character who can be killed in a dramatic scene but then come back to life again and again, well, you're definitely onto something. Which brings us to Varney the Vampire. Are there any sort of additions? There are. There is an addition. Um, Dr. Colleen brought his copy with him to the studio. Zitwall Press brought out an edition in the Ah, early early 2000s, um, edited by Kurt Herr, which which is the only edition you could really read without losing your your patience. (laughs) And Um, that is a monster of a That is a monster. The print is quite small. uh, You know, we're talking about uh, 800 pages. (laughs) Yeah, a very small print in an A4 size. Yes, uh, it, it. <laughs> <laughs> I do wonder how many scholars have actually read the whole lot. I mean, I I, did, I read it twice. Really, uh, I don't think I'd read it again. Very, very few people today read Varney in its entirety, twice. But it was a sensation in its time. The story is by, or primarily by, a Scottish writer, James Malcolm Rymer. And the plot is, well, a little complicated. Well, th- there's a few different plots. I suppose that the, the, it starts with Varney attacking this virginal uh, member of the Bannerworth family um, called Flora. And the first plot it takes up quite a lot of the, 
the best known part of Varney is Varney's um, constant attacks on this Bannerworth family. Uh, and there's all these suggestions that he may be a relative, a long dead relative um, of the Bannerworth family because he looks rather like a portrait of one of the Bannerworth, the, you know, the, the Bannerworth ancestors. And that's, that's, you know, that's the story really for a very, very long uh, section of you. You think that, that Varney is the re- revived uh, old rogue of a Bannerworth from uh, a couple of, of generations before. You follow the plot all the way. It, there's at least three back origin stories of, of Varney. You know, it keeps changing. You know, another origin story after the Bannerworth, we're told that he is actually a, a scientific experiment uh, on a hanged man from the 18th century, a revived uh, criminal. Um, later on, we're told, no, he's not that. He's actually a, a double agent who lived during the Cromwellian period <laughs> and who uh, uh, killed his wife. And his vampirism is a, is a kind of supernatural incarnation of this. So there's natural explanations, there's supernatural explanations. There's no consistency, really, in the backstory. And Varney's aim is he has to get the blood of a virgin in order to keep going. So he's always trying to find a virgin, either to attack or to marry, and then drain her. So you get all these episodes of Varney appearing in various European uh, cities, uh, trying to, you know, under a, under an uh, you know assumed name, trying to convince um, a family to marry off their, their their daughter to him. The story had everything that the public was looking for: blood and violence, vampires and virgins. But having said all that, a bit like maybe TV pilots today, the penny bloods were churned out in huge numbers, with publishers trying to work out what would make a bestseller, what would stick. And Varney really stuck, which prompts us to ask, why? What did Varney have that all those other stories lacked? What made it a literary sensation that continued to be serialised week after week for two years? And there are a few reasons. Firstly, it fed into a, by then, long-established tradition of vampire stories, and this was still half a century before Dracula. Vampires emerged in the English-speaking world, really, in the 1730s, um, with reports in London newspapers of bodies coming back to life in Eastern Europe, or in Hungary, Austria, um, Serbia. And it shocked reports, partly about how credible, you know, how credulous these people must be to believe that people can come back to life. These peasants, um, so they're often isolated villages, and the the incidents of vampirism um, are described, you know, happening in these isolated villages and being investigated by uh, military surgeons of the Habsburg Empire, and then who would then write reports, which would be published in newspapers throughout Europe in the 1730s. And there's a vampire craze after this. People obsess over these stories emerging from Eastern Europe of uh, these peasants uh, coming back to life. And the vampire metaphor then starts to, to, you know, to become much more mobile. So suddenly in the, in the 1740s, 50s, 60s, you know, people describing politicians as vampires, people describing bankers as vampires, speculators as vampires. So vampirism becomes quite useful. From there, vampires and vampire-like figures started to crop up more in literature, in poetry in particular, in German and then in English in the early 19th century. 
And then, in 1816, at the Villa di Rari by Lake Geneva in Switzerland, there occurred one of the most famous nights in literary history. Lord Byron, his personal physician John Polidori, Claire Claremont, who was pregnant with Byron's child, and Mary and Percy Shelley were staying at the villa. And when Byron suggested a ghost story competition, two important stories emerged. Mary Shelley most famously wrote Frankenstein, or at least a story that she would then turn into her masterpiece. But Byron also wrote a fragment of a story which inspired John Polidori to write his own tale. Polidori then developed this into The Vampire, and another important step in the development of the literary vampire was taken. Polidori's vampire was Lord Ruthven, and it marked the beginnings of the aristocratic vampire, Lord Ruthven, Count Dracula, Sir Francis Varney. Now, Varney may be a nobleman, but he is definitely not the sexy vampire aristocrat. He is incredibly ugly. There's nothing sexy about Varney whatsoever. He is, in the first episode of Varney the Vampire, he is uh, cadaverous. He is almost without flesh. He's skeletal. Uh, His breath absolutely stinks. His flesh is rotting. Um... He is not a handsome man. He has mesmeric eyes, we're told. And mm. if you catch him, catch his eyes, he, he can almost put you into a hypnotic s- state. But he's certainly not an attractive man. He looks absolutely repulsive. And one of the reasons it's quite difficult to convince all these women to marry him is because he's so ugly. And it's, he, he looks out of place. He looks like a corpse. And he really, really smells. He must smell really bad for anyone in 19th century London to think that this is a smelly man. Because, you know... Yeah, one historian says about 19th century London, think of the worst smell you could ever have ever experienced and just imagine that in your nostrils every single day of your life. <laughs> that is what it would be like to live in 19th century no- London. It just stank to high heaven. So anytime literature coming from London in this period mentions stinks, it must be absolutely, they must mean it reeks. It absolutely <laughs> reeks. The other reason that Varney the Vampire was so popular as a penny blood, why it lasted for so long when other similar stories faded away, was due to the relative quality of the writing, and in particular because of the character of Varney himself. It's quite well written by comparison. The plot, certainly at the beginning, the plot starts to stick together. It looks like there's going to be this run, this this through line. Um, it's just because it gets so extended that it, he can't he can't sustain it. And Varney himself is interesting. Varney is an interesting character. He is a tortured vampire. He doesn't like being a vampire. He doesn't enjoy having to suck the blood of all these virgins. Um, he feels guilt. Um, he wants to die. He he tries to commit suicide a number of times in the course of the text. At one stage, he even you know throws himself into the sea and sinks to the bottom, and somehow. <laughs> A ray of the of the moon happens to fall on him. Moonlight is what brings him back to life in the story. He can happily be out and about during the day. It might have been this association with the moon and the night, though, that contributed to the later trope that vampires are killed by daylight. So all the way through, he's this tortured hero. He's not the kind of bloodthirsty, malevolent figure like somebody like uh, Count Dracula or Lord Ruthven earlier on in the century. He's not, he doesn't like the fact that he has to live this life. He's so sympathetic that the virgin that he attacks in the first pages of the novel eventually end up, ends up sheltering him, or providing shelter from, from a mob who are coming to kill Varney, and he comes to her for help, and she, she hides him in her, in her bedroom. 
Um, and, you know, the mob can't enter the bedroom of a gentlewoman in this period, so he, he, he escapes. But he, he, she does this because by this time, the family have gotten quite friendly with, <laughs> with Varney. And he is sympathetic, suave, in, interested, intelligent um, figure. He's quite a compelling And this is certainly the lasting legacy of Varney, the tortured vampire, the vampire we can sympathise with, whose plight we can feel sorry for, a character we can recognise across a huge range of 20th and 21st century vampires. The tale is a violent, blood-splattered thriller designed for shock value and mass appeal, but it also has a fascinating and sympathetic character at its core. It blends contemporary concerns with death and public violence with strong characterization and a page-turning plot. And, of course, some classic scenes of terror. A flash. A wild, blue, bewildering flash of lightning streams across that bay window for an instant, bringing out every colour in it with terrible distinctness. A tall figure is standing on the ledge immediately outside the long window. It is its fingernails upon the glass that produces the sound so like the hail, now that the hail has ceased. Intense fear paralyzes the limbs of that beautiful girl. She tries to scream, but a choking sensation comes over her, and she cannot. She can, but in a hoarse, faint whisper, cry, help, 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 help. A small pane of glass is broken, and the form from without introduces a long, gaunt hand, which seems utterly destitute of flesh. The fastening is removed, and one half of the window, which opens like folding doors, is swung wide upon its hinges. The figure turns half round, and the light falls upon the face. It's perfectly white, perfectly bloodless. The eyes look like polished tin, the lips are drawn back, and the principal feature next to those dreadful eyes is the teeth fearful-looking teeth, projecting like those of some wild animal, hideously, glaringly white and fang-like. It approaches the bed with a strange gliding movement. It clashes together the long nails that literally appear to hang from the finger ends. No sound comes from its lips. That's it for another Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. For links to the full text of Varney, for pictures, full transcripts of the episode, and much more, head to the WTTE website, which is wttepodcast.com. From there, you can also find links to the live show and to Patreon. I'll also put up a link to the Murder One Festival I mentioned at the break. A huge thanks to my guest this week, Dr. Jarlath Killeen. Dr. Killeen has published so much great work. If you're a fan of Gothic and horror or Victorian literature more generally, you'll definitely want to look him up if you haven't already. And I'll put links to his bio and his work in the show notes. Music this week was by Overhead the Albatross and 3 at Cano, and links to their work is on the website. And finally, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at CEDREID, C-E-D-R-E-I-D, and Words to That Effect is on Facebook and Instagram too. There's been a great reception to the new season, more listeners than ever. So thank you if you've been telling your friends and keep it up. And I'll see you in two weeks. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.